real experts are wrong and will admit that they're wrong. Actually, one of the ways that you can identify an expert is you can search them admitting to being wrong at some point in time. Because, you know, people who are never wrong aren't experts. They're jerks. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Doc Working the Whole Physician Podcast. We are so glad you're with us today. You're in for a great conversation. And as always, the podcast is brought to you by Doc Working Thrive. Go to docworking.com today to learn how you could earn up to eight CME credits, learn how to be less stressed and happier in your life and work, and get coaching on our online platform as well. Go to docworking.com for more. So today's conversation, I think, is so relevant to so many physicians who are listening and practicing medicine in the state of the world that we are in as it relates to science denialism and the emergence that came up, especially in these last two years since COVID reared its head in February, March of 2020. It's become something that comes up a lot with my physician clients, and I'm really excited to have the conversation today with Dr. Mark Hufnagel. Mark is a trauma surgeon, specializes in acute care at Washington University in St. Louis and Barnes Jewish Hospital. He also is a critical thinker who has an enormous Twitter following, and he has written about critical thinking and denialism since back in 2007. His essay on what is denialism on science blogs from 2007 created a framework for understanding the public dissemination of anti-science narratives. And it's been cited all over the place, including in an article that I saw most recently in a Canadian publication that sparked the conversation between Mark and I, which I thought would be wonderful to bring to all of you as well. Mark is a brilliant guy, a stand-up human, and a friend of mine. So I'm excited for us to be able to have this conversation together. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about going back to you writing about this back in 2007 before COVID and COVID denialism was anything that we would have been thinking about. What prompted you to begin thinking about science denialism and how it impacted the practice of medicine way back 15 plus years ago now? It's funny. It's how I wasted my time in graduate school. At the time, it was the Dover v. Connecticut case on evolution denial was going on, and I was a graduate student. I was writing a science blog, and I was drawing connections between the different denialist movements, which shared a number of similarities, and for, for you know, very specific reasons. Part of it is, is that these narratives are effective. They manipulate the way that we think, basic human heuristics of how we encounter information and how we deal with contrary information. And these are really kind of built-in things to our brains that allow us to reject things that we don't want to hear or we don't want to believe. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, they are very purposefully and systemically exploited by a number of groups because they know that these narratives and these dialogues will work. And that's been happening, you know, ever since the 50s with the organized denialism by the tobacco companies against believing that tobacco causes cancer. And then in the 2000s, there was the evolution wars. At the same time, the rise of the internet, organization of anti-vax groups, other anti-science groups, global warming denialism, and it's all of a piece. So I basically organized the framework into five tactics that are classically used by denialists. And conspiracy being the most important one, because if you need to deny a body of science, you basically have to come up with an explanation for why all these scientists are lying. You know, it's these very kind of impossible, improbable 
conspiracies that would require an immense amount of organization that is you know, laughable if you know any kind of scientists that they would all kind of get together and agree on one thing, followed by cherry picking of evidence, fake experts. So this is a really big problem in the time of COVID is that a number of people have come forward as public experts on health who are not, but they say things that are congruent with people's ideology. So they are accepted and given as much or more time than people actually know what they're talking about. And then after that, you have goalposts moving, you know, people don't want to change their minds. So they'll keep on pushing the goalposts along further and further and demanding more evidence. When the reality is, is it's not evidence that's what's going to convince them. They are committed to this line of reasoning. So you'll find that even as you satisfy their demands, they'll keep moving the goalposts. And then the last is just a host of general logical fallacies that you encounter that are effective on people, but ultimately empty rhetoric. Fascinating. So say a little bit more, if you would, about the last point you made, the fallacies. What would be an example of that? Or how does that play out in life? The first one I encountered was with global warming denialism. Everybody was making a big deal that, you know, Al Gore's house is this big, huge, inefficient mansion. It has a bigger carbon footprint than, you know, anything else. What does that have to do at all with whether or not carbon affects climate? Nothing. But it's like one of these things that gets people all riled up. It's like, oh, he's a hypocrite. It doesn't matter if he's a hypocrite. It doesn't change the science. And that's just kind of a very common example. And what we've seen with Russian disinformation campaigns and COVID disinformation campaigns is there is a constant callback to what's called whataboutism, where you know, rather than talking about the issue or talking about the data, they say, well, what about this? And it's like, it's not actually relevant. You know, hypocrisy actually isn't ultimately relevant. So I'd say whataboutism is probably the best kind of current example of something that's a logical fallacy, and it's usually an argument to quote quite. Yeah, and it's kind of red herrings, right? It's let's have everybody focus on this as opposed to talking about, you know, the most important factor, and we lose prioritization then of what really matters. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, it's a distraction technique. It's a way to derail the topic. So what do you think is different now in the way that we consume media, the change in social media, and the number of people that engage in social media conversations, how has that changed how these five tactics for science denialism and misinformation dissemination changed what was happening when you were first looking at this as a graduate student, you know, back in the 2007 era? A number of things have happened with the rise of social media being the most obvious one. But, you know, we're also seeing big, broad social changes that have been even like 50 years in the making, major changes in the way that we have dealt with misinformation since the past, trust in experts, expansion of news media to cater to more and more outlandish views. So there's just been a huge broadening in the scope of the problem, as well as a technological ease of access, combined with a number of legislative things that have made it so that Misinformation isn't just you know, a thing that you found out from you know, your loser cousin in the garage, but it's actually profitable to do. You know? One of the things that unifies all of these various denialist organizations, groups, individuals, is that they often are running a side gig based on it. They can monetize this. The most common thing being you know, nutritional supplements. And it's basically a clearinghouse. You know that you kind of have people that are susceptible to misinformation. So it's really easy to also at the same time sell them products that are based on either something that's ideologically congruent with what you're up to. You know, Alex Jones sells these various like hyper-masculine bodybuilding products and survivalist gear. You know, it's all kind of part of the grift. 
that if you bring them in, you can also kind of select for the people that will be susceptible to products that are sold on misinformation. That was really eased by the 1994 passage of, I think it was a Hatch product, of a bill that basically made it possible to basically advertise uh, alternative medicines again without really any kind of regulation to keep them under control, where you could basically advertise the supposed use aside from the actual product. But it basically, once again, made selling people snake oil profitable. And one of the biggest issues that I think funds this and drives this and is the underpinning is fraud, is that we have kind of relaxed regulatory authorities and allowed just broad-based consumer fraud to just persist everywhere on the internet. It is very hard to get under control. And whenever you look at any of the people that is selling disinformation, there's usually a monetary benefit behind it. The fake experts become celebrities, they get media access, they get speaking gigs. The people that are running websites are selling products. They're selling various supplements, survival gear, whatever. But it's a profitable business. They make money doing it. And there's no organized effort or way to stop them from doing so. Very just interesting, sobering all at once. I think for us to think about it in these terms. So you are a scientist, right? When you're not saving gunshot victims' lives on the table as an expert trauma surgeon, you also do a lot of research for a living as well. It's a big part of your life as an MD, PhD. And so I know that one of the things that's got to be frustrating for you as a professional scientist is to hear how often people say, well, this scientist is saying this, or there's a study that shows X, Y, Z as it relates to COVID. And, you know, there was a lot of different alternative treatments being thrown around. And I would listen to people in my life who would come up and be talking about, well, the doctors are saying this, but there's other research and there's science that's showing this. And I know for a lot of my physician clients, it kind of left them flat footed sometimes when they were face to face with the patient, because they didn't know immediately in that moment, even though it felt crazy what the person was saying, how to counter that piece of alleged science with something that was more credible. Can you talk a little about that for us? Yeah. I mean, that's ivermectin, right? So I'm a COVID physician too. So I do critical care. I take care of very sick people. And I have had patient families bring up things like ivermectin. I've had patients try to refuse to have their families treated inside the hospital because they're convinced that the hospital is killing COVID patients. Like the problem is just going to the hospital or you're denying them life-saving ivermectin. And they didn't want to have their family member admitted because we wouldn't give ivermectin. And you're just absolutely amazed because it is a complete unraveling of the credibility of a system that, you know, we're used to being found credible. Because generally as physicians, when people come to see us, they are open to what we're going to say. That's why they're seeking us out. They want our expert information and opinion. So physicians end up in a place where they think the problem is that there's just not enough information. Like they just don't have the right, if they just had the right information, that would be the thing that would save them. But that's not how this works. Communication of science is itself a science and has been studied. That's called the information deficit model. And that's wrong. People have access to endless amounts of information. We all are a you know, keystroke away from whatever anybody wants to find out, you know, true or false, the information is not the problem. The problem is, is that when you have people who are in ideologic silos and they need to protect their identity with a set of beliefs, the beliefs that join us together aren't so much the truths, but the lies that we share. And if you have to counter that ideology, 
you basically have to counter who they are as a person. Like they don't want to give up on that. They will believe anything else other than you know something that will basically create a conflict with who they are, their community, where they perceive their place in society. So the issue isn't information. You can't inform somebody out of this. And that's a common misconception. So this has been studied. The ways that you get people to come around after they've kind of fallen from misinformation, if they're still open, it isn't just by listing the facts at them. It isn't by calling them stupid. It isn't by suggesting that they've been duped, even if they have been duped. Nobody wants to hear that. It doesn't work. People who have been scammed do not want to accept that they've been scammed and will fight it tooth and nail because that makes them feel foolish. And they don't want to feel foolish. So what you have to do instead is you have to emphasize relationships, try to rebuild trust. You know, if you are a family doctor and you've been saying this patient for years, what you say to them is like, you know, you know me, I know you. I don't think that, you know, you are wrong to have believed this thing, but here's the problem. And then one thing that is useful is to lay out the tactics of those that want you to believe this thing, point out their interest in having them believe it express care for them that, you know, you're not trying to make them change who they are or believe different things, but, you know, this is the thing that we have the best evidence for, and I want to protect you, protect your family, prevent you from spreading a disease, things like that, and kind of appeal to them as people, because we know the issue isn't information, it's ideology, it's modes of thought, it's the communities that people become invested in, and you have to pull people into your community, and, you know, you have to pull them towards you at the same time, you kind of gently push away the disinformation and say, well, you know, they may have a bit of a vested interest in, you know, pushing this lie. Or, you know, like, for instance, with ivermectin, it's really interesting when ivermectin started rearing up because I went on Twitter and I described the exact path that ivermectin was going to take in terms of how, as the evidence fell apart, that they would resist changing their minds. They're going to say, oh, well, you gave the wrong dose. Oh, well, you didn't give it at the right time. And the reason why I know that they're going to do this is they did all the same things for vitamin C. It's even the same people. It's Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey. So you know how they're going to behave. You know how they're going to move the goalposts. And you just have to explain to them, it's like these doctors, they are kind of riding a little high on ego. They're ahead of the evidence. They're pushing something that we don't have good data for. We have very good data for this. I would rather you didn't pursue this because, you know, I care about you. I want you and your family to be safe. And you have to kind of reach out to people as people and not just batter them with data or call them stupid or say that they've been duped. Yeah, that is it, right? And studying the psychology of challenging communication with people, you just hit it beautifully. It isn't, you know, debate time, it's relationship time. And that can be hard for doctors who are used to looking at science. And I know this about you, Mark, you're a scientist and you're okay with being wrong. But a lot of other people in the world, when you're saying you're wrong about this specific data point that they've been taken in by a quote expert, it's challenging their identity. It's challenging their sense of safety. I belong to this group of people who think this. And if you, Dr. Mark, and I'm in your office are trying to tell me, I can't believe that you're telling me I can't belong essentially to the tribe of humans that I feel safest and most connected to. And so I really like the way that you laid that out. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah. And real experts are wrong and will admit that they're wrong. Actually, one of the ways that you can identify an expert is you can search them admitting to being wrong at some point in time. Because, you know, people who are never wrong aren't experts. They're jerks. They're egoists. Because we're all wrong sometimes. We all get things wrong sometimes. And with COVID, you know, there were a ton of unknowns and experts were guided by 
the science of previous pandemics and what they knew about biology, but that didn't necessarily mean that they were going to get everything right all the time. And there were very early obvious blunders. And, you know, that's okay. Like they're working with incomplete information and it's a sign of the expert that they take the new information and incorporate it into a new framework and move ahead. You know, you don't just plant your feet and say, no, I was still right. And, you know, speaking of the fake experts, you know, this is an example of why they're not real experts. You know, even taking individuals, Io early on, you know, predicted that, oh, this was just going to kill a few thousand people. You know, and now we're at a million and he's still backpedaling, trying to defend that kind of initial thing. It's like, no, you just have to accept you're wrong. Like, you got this one wrong. Marty McCary, who's often on, you know, Fox News, has predicted a number of bizarre things since the beginning. Like, we had had herd immunity by last April. They would have herd immunity if only 20% of people got vaccinated. And we're having trouble clearing 65% of vaccination, right? It was about where we are right now. And Omicron came through in this last wave and infected 50% of Americans. We're nowhere near herd immunity. And people have been predicting it over and over and over again, and wrong and wrong and wrong, and continuing to make the same prediction or refusing to acknowledge past error. And that's one of the sure signs that you are not a serious expert. And in terms of critical thinking, you know, critical thinking is less about kind of knowing these rules of argumentation and debate and trying to avoid, you know, in terms of useful information for people who are listening, how do you avoid getting taken? And the people you should listen to aren't necessarily scientists or logicians and stuff. The people that you should pay attention to are magicians because, you know, magicians are the most honest people in the world, is what James Randi had said. We're going to tell you, we're going to trick you, and then we do, right? Because they know how to turn these wheels and manipulate people. And the key to critical thinking isn't, you know, having a ton of information and knowing logic really well and just having tons of data because you can construct things to fool yourself, which brings up another thing. Richard Feynman said, you know, the first principle of critical thinking is realizing the easiest person to fool is yourself. And you will be fooled by people in your life. It will happen. It happens to us all. And the way that people fool you is they manipulate your emotions. They make you angry. They flatter you. They give you the piece of information plus something, you know, something that pulls you along. And it's that that you have to kind of look out for. You know, you have to really kind of engage your logical gears a little bit more strongly when somebody is making you outraged. Because when you get emotional, that's when you are thinking less clearly. And the people that are trying to give you good information are the ones that are trying to keep you calm and just lay it out. And they're not trying to take anything from you. They're asking for money. You know, this is just the way our brains work. We like, you know, being flattered or we become irrational when we get angry. And they know that if they can make you angry, they can make you do anything. So, I mean, that's like my, you know, quick critical thinking, like how to. It's like the first thing that you have to watch for is your own emotions and your own interaction with the information and why you want to believe that, should you? And if you don't kind of interrogate your own feelings about information, you are going to get taken. Beautiful. And I think when you can come to the patient communication and the patient relationship with that after processing your own stuff as a physician, as you said, and so that you can come in, not so that you're robotic and emotional and caring, but you can be the compassionate witness to what might be motivating them to believe something that makes you want to pull your hair out because it feels so crazy. And if you can come at it from that perspective, slow yourself down and think sometimes creatively about how to communicate it in a way that tells them, you know, again, they're not stupid. They're not idiots for not believing. 
let me go into a plus smartest guy in the room or smartest girl in the room mode and tell you why you're wrong by debating Mm -hmm. you, but thinking more about how to relationally convey how you can understand why somebody else's misinformation would be believable because the other person's motivation is to make you believe it, but then to come back. Another thing that I find when I've been coaching physicians is inviting them to think of stories because when people are under threat, they can't take in data. But we as humans are really good at listening and believing stories about other humans. And so when you can do that, that can be an effective way to communicate as well. Yeah, you have to figure out people's motivations for believing things because this is actually literally called motivated reasoning. They are reasoning in a way that is motivated by something else other than the facts and the logic. And another very helpful technique to help deprogram people is just use the Socratic technique, you know, not necessarily hit them with your side immediately. Be like, so why do you think this? Where, you know, where did you hear this? Why do you think they want people to believe this? Why do you believe this? You know, what do you think this means for you? And just kind of get them talking about it. And once people are forced to kind of go through the logic of why they've come up with a decision, they themselves will often see the holes in it. And then you can kind of help them fill those gaps and be like, so you see, you know, this is how you got there. And that's not wrong. You know, there is a logic to it. But, you know, we recommend something else for these reasons. This is how we got there. And it's less confrontational. It's listening. And sometimes it's really hard because often you are listening to something that's objectively bonkers. Yeah, it's wackadoodle. <laughs> you know, like, I've literally had families say that they didn't want a loved one to come into the hospital because we wouldn't give them ivermectin. And wow. You know, like it's a very difficult place to start from and you just have to, you know, slow down, don't get angry, talk them through it, discuss things. And it's one of the most difficult things, but hopefully, you know, we're trained to be good listeners by now. So finally, Mark, you developed these ideas around these five tactics again, back in 2007, when you were in grad school and noticing patterns coming through science denialism and, you know, fake information and people's propensity for taking that in. As you are practicing medicine now here in 2022 and have been practicing medicine on the front lines, really, of the ICU as a COVID doctor, in addition to your work as a surgeon, how have you been able to take what you know about this and put it into practice in a way that has helped you feel good about practicing medicine and help you connect to patients? Well, one of the advantages I have is that often there isn't any debate with me about what people need. (laughs) You know, people show up in their shot and, you know, they want care immediately and there isn't even a time often to discuss things. So I'm a little bit of a uh, rarefied position where a lot of times, you know, there isn't a need for a long or protracted debate or to discuss these things. When I'm interacting with folks more one-on-one and they have, you know, certain sets of beliefs that are, you know, incongruent. I think it's helpful knowing these strategies because we run into conflicts all the time with patients when they believe things that, you know, we would prefer that they didn't or things that we perceive to be harmful. And you have to walk this fine line of paternalism and, you know, respecting their choices over what is objectively factually incorrect. And thinking about these things all the time and seeing how people compartmentalize things, I think it it does help me understand, you know, how people as people come to decisions and give them guidance, you know, if it's something as simple as a consent conversation or discussing why, you know, treatment is going right or wrong, understanding how people interact with information and, you know, what they're going to take away from what you say 
is really useful. And it keeps you a little bit armored because you know that you're going to say certain things to a patient and they are going to take away something and it won't necessarily be what you intended. And that happens over and over again. Every physician's had that experience where you know, somebody shows up possible. Well, they said you were going to do surgery on me. It's like, well, did I say that? You know, this kind of thing, you know, oh, the doctor said, you know, I had an 80% chance of dying. It's like, actually, you know, we never say things like that, but this is the way people hear things, the way people process information. And if you kind of study critical thinking and the way people and their heuristics for evaluating information work, you see how they fall in these traps and you can help guide them around them. That would be, I'd say, the most useful thing. But other than that, all it does is provide me a Twitter following and a citation <laughs> once in nature. You know, the way I wasted my time in grad school got me a citation in nature. None of my science is ever probably going to get there. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for this conversation. I think it's really rich. And I think you know, the downside and the disheartening side, and I know that's exhausting for physicians who have been used to having that credibility and feeling like some of that has been challenged unfairly and unnecessarily. I think the positive aspect of this, where there's the potential for some growth, is that as physicians are willing to think about how to reshape communication, reshape the way that we do try to support patients and people's ability to live healthy and long lives, getting creative about new ways to communicate meaningfully, even in challenging situations, I think serves everybody better in the long run. And you've really helped us do that in this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I want you guys all to go over to Twitter and check out Mark Hoofnagel, H-O-O-F-N-A-G-L-E. There's just a lot of good, compelling conversations there. If you liked this topic, you'll see a lot more there. And I want you to go check it out. Uh, meantime, thanks, Dr. Hoofnagel, for being with us and providing so much rich conversation with us. And thank you all for being part of this conversation. Share it with friends and make sure you go to docworking.com today. Check out Doc Working Thrive and see how we can help with your stress, your work performance, and how happy you are in your life. Until next time, I'm Jill Farmer. <laughs>